Today on the show, we will be discussing what the Bible actually says on the topic of hell. My name is Hayden Clark, and this is Help Me Believe. Before jumping into today's episode, I want to say thank you to our patron supporters. If you want to become a patron supporter and show your support for Help Me Believe, and if you want to get behind a mission of spreading and defending the truth of Christianity, just follow the link in the description below and go to our Patreon website and become a supporter. So, life has been extremely busy for the Clark household. This is our new household, by the way. As you can tell, this setup is a bit different. I'm still getting accustomed here in the new house. So that's one thing that has changed is my wife and I just bought our first house. Also, my wife is pregnant with our first child, and it is a girl. I'm very excited slash terrified. Um, terrified because I it seems like a lot of responsibility. I hope I do a good job, that sort of stuff. But we are extremely excited. We're having a baby girl, so that's another thing on top of the new house. On top of that, I started a new job as well, um, working at a different bank now. And so there's just a lot of change going on, a lot of stuff happening. And so that's why I have been absent for like a week or two. I can't remember the last time I made a video or a blog. And so that just explains the absence there. In fact, I haven't even set up the Wi-Fi or Internet in this new house. Um, I'm only able to do this right now because my wife has this voodoo magic thing called uh, Hotspot on her iPad and on her phone. Her wireless uh, service is different than mine, and she has Hotspot on hers. And apparently that lets me <laughs> use the Internet. I technologically illiterate. I know I'm a millennial, so I should know these sort of things, but technology is just crazy. Anyway, today I want to return to my dialogue on the topic of hell. Uh, so I did a previous uh, post on this uh, before, and it was uh, you know pretty well received by the audience, and uh, I think I did a video on it. I for sure did a blog on it. Um, but anyway, I've been studying the topic of hell. This is something I've been, pun intended, rethinking, and that's the title of a book I've been reading called uh, Rethinking Hell, Readings in uh, Evangelical Conditionalism. If you remember, I had Chris Date on the podcast not too long ago to discuss this very topic. I've also been reading um, what has been uh, recommended to me as the the best defense of the traditional view of hell, that is, the eternal conscious torment view of hell. Now, to catch you up, if you missed the episode with Chris Date or the blog or any of my other writings on this subject, the traditional view of hell is that non-believers, the wicked, evildoers, will suffer eternal conscious torment so just they'll you know like you see the picture of someone burning in hell forever that's going to be the punishment for the wicked or the non-believers now the conditionalist view is that um, it stands for conditional immortality not everybody's going to live forever only those who put their faith in jesus are going to live forever uh, non-believers or the wicked evildoers will be uh, annihilated they'll cease to exist god's final judgment upon them will be well final they will cease to exist. God will annihilate them for their wicked doing. So I wanted to share some insights uh, in my study here. And so, I, again, I've been reading this book, uh, Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism. And you can get that book on Amazon by following the link in the description below. Um, so I've only read the first few chapters, but I can already tell um, that it's going to be a really good book. And I definitely recommend it to you if for no other reason. 
uh, just so you can understand a different perspective and understand that this different perspective is not just held by um, you know liberals who don't take the Bible seriously, etc., etc. This view is held by um, evangelicals who take the Bible seriously, who hold the Bible up here, who, who take God's word higher than man's word, etc., etc. It's held by uh, conservative evangelicals as well, and you can see why as they make their case straight from the Bible. These are people who believe whatever God's word says, that's what I'm going to believe. It's just that when they turn to the scriptures, they do not see the traditional understanding of hell. They see what is now being called the conditionalist view of hell or the annihilationist view of hell. Now, chapter two of this book um, is written by Edward Fudge. It's actually an article that he uh, wrote in 1984. Uh, Edward Fudge is a minister, theologian. Again, he wrote this article in 1984, um, and it was published in the uh, Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. The title of it was called The Final End of the Wicked, and that's the question. Um, and Fudge begins his article by saying, The question at stake is not, therefore, whether the wicked will suf suffer eternal punishment. It is rather of what that punishment consists. So it's important to keep in mind that both traditionalists and conditionalists believe that God's just wrath will be dealt upon the wicked and non-believing. Likewise, both agree that this punishment will be eternal and irrevocable. So it's not as if conditionalists don't think God is going to punish the wicked. He is. That would be something closer to universalism and, and not all forms of universalism. But uh, that would be closer to universalism. Conditionalists are saying, no, God is going to punish the, the wicked, and he's just and righteous for doing so. It, the difference between traditionalists and conditionalists is what that punishment will be. So the traditionalist believes that God will uh, confine the wicked to a place where they will be consciously tormented uh, for an unending amount of time. The conditionalist, on the other hand, believes that God will annihilate the wicked to the effect that they will cease to exist forever. So the consequence is eternal. They're not coming back. They're go they will cease to exist forever, eternally, however you want to say it, that's fine. So again, the traditionalists and the, and the conditionalists are in agreement that God is going to punish the wicked, and that punishment is going to be irrevocable. irrevocable. It's going to last forever. It's eternal. Uh, Fudge then goes on in his article to characterize the traditional view as resting upon two uh, assumptions or two presumptions here. Or two premises. One that the the first one is that the Old Testament is silent on the matter. So Fudge is saying that the tradi traditionalists would make their case by saying the Old Testament is silent on the matter. And secondly, that the doctrine of unending conscious torment developed between the testaments. So between the New Testament, and Old Testament, that's where this doctrine developed in the first place. You can't find it in the Old Testament, and that it became the common view by the time of the writing of the New Testament. So they're trying to say, yeah, it's not found in the Old Testament. Um, explicitly, but it developed over time, and by the time of the writing of the New Testament, so by the time Paul and uh, you know the gospel writers and, and, and Peter or whoever else wrote in the New Testament, by the time they wrote their letters and gospels, the major view amongst the Jews was eternal conscious torment. That's the case that many traditionalists will try to make. Now, if this is mischaracterizing or caricaturing your take on the traditionalist view, then of course I apologize. I can't address everybody's take on the matter. I'm, and this is Fudge actually characterizing it, not me. But I will attest to the fact that many traditionalists that I know personally will make this case. They'll say, yeah, it's not explicitly found in the Old Testament, but that doesn't mean it isn't true because the doctrine developed over time, especially in the intertestamental period or the Second Temple period. 
And by the time of the writing of the New Testament, it was the major view, and we, we see it, in fact, in the New Testament. That's the case that many traditionalists will make. I hope that's a fair representation of how tra many traditionalists, at least, make their case. So Fudge begins with the Old Testament, and he agrees with the character characterization of a traditionalist that the Old Testament is silent on eternal conscious torment, but Fudge states that the Old Testament overwhelm overwhelmingly affirms that the wicked will be totally destroyed. So sure, it's, it's silent on the matter if you only consider the matter eternal conscious torment. But if you consider the matter the fate of the wicked or the fate of non-believers, the Old Testament, of course, is not silent. And Fudge is saying, it, not only is it not silent, but it overwhelmingly affirms that the wicked will be totally destroyed. And so in support of his claim, he cites Psalm 2.9, Malachi 4.3, Psalm 37.20, Psalm 1.4, Psalm 58.8, Isaiah 1.31, Isaiah 33.12, Psalm 68.2, and Psalm 73.20. Now you can go back and listen to that audio and then go check out the scriptures for yourself and decide for yourself, of course. But the, the point here is that the word pictures, which describe the fate of the wicked in these verses, imply their total destruction. So Fudge states that the tr traditionalists must negate that the wicked will become like the things the Old Testament here in these verses is describing. And not only that, but they must actually affirm that, they, that the wicked will, will become like something none of these verses or the Old Testament as a whole, for that matter, describes. And that would be something like an everlasting spectacle of indestructible material in an unending fire. The, uh, the Old Testament, at least, never describes the wicked in this sort of a way. But it does describe them as being totally destroyed, or it describes them as being something like what can be destroyed. So Fudge is correct that the Old Testament describes the wicked as substances that will be destroyed. This is informative for the obvious. The New Testament writers, uh, they've obviously formed their theology on the backbone of the Old Testament. That was their Bible. The New Testament didn't exist. They were writing the New Testament. So when they're writing their own theology, um, they're obviously drawing upon the Old Testament. And this is brought up. This is nothing new. This is always brought up in uh, every discussion that you'll hear about hermeneutics or how to interpret the scriptures. We should let the scripture interpret the scripture. And so if you're going to interpret the New Testament, you need to take into consideration the New Testament's usage of the Old Testament, because that's what the writers were working with. They were working with the Old Testament. And, and this point is often made by conservatives, who ironically just so happen to hold to the traditionalist view of hell, that is eternal conscious torment. And so the irony here is a bit sharp, that you don't find eternal conscious torment in the Old Testament. And whenever you are going to interpret the New Testament, you should be doing so in light of what the Old Testament says, because that's who the New what the New Testament authors were drawing upon. But how can you get eternal conscious torment in your interpretation of the New Testament when it doesn't exist in the Old Testament, which is what the New Testament writers would have been using? So that's the dilemma here that Fudge is kind of making. Uh, Fudge then turns to God's judgment upon the wicked in the historical books of the Old Testament, uh, and he takes the earth at the time of Noah's flood as his first example. So the, the world was wicked, you know, and God looked, and there was no one who was righteous, no one that was doing anything good. And so he decides to destroy the earth, sparing Noah and his family, of course. And so this event, it, it then, well, first of all, he destroys it, right? They don't, they suffer, yeah, they're tormented, sure, but not forever, they die. 
And this event, this very event, is it then becomes a model for the judgment of the wicked at the time of the eschaton, or the final judgment, or at the end of the world. And you can see that in Second Peter two five, Second Peter three three through seven, and Matthew twenty four thirty eight through thirty nine. Uh, then Fudge turns to the example of God's judgment upon Sodom, uh, which was also total destruction. And likewise, this event later becomes a model, just like Noah's flood. It becomes a model for God's judgment upon the wicked at the time of the eschaton. Again, uh, you can see this in Genesis 19, 24, 29, Deuteronomy 29, 23, Isaiah 1, 9, Isaiah 13, 19 through 22, Jeremiah 49, 18, Jeremiah 50, 40, Lamentations 4, 6, Amos 4, 11, Zephaniah 2, 9, Luke 17, 28 through 33, 2 Peter 2, 6, and Jude 7 and 23. Again, you're welcome to go back and look those up. So Fudge then moves on from the historical books of the Old Testament to survey what the prophets uh, have to say about this matter, and he notes that they likewise, the prophets, describe the destruction of the wicked as total. He quotes, Ze or he cites Zephaniah 1, 14-18, Isaiah 66, 16-24, Ezekiel 39, 9-22, Daniel 12, 2, and Malachi 4, 3. And then he gives a summary statement and says, The wicked become, in short, as though they had never been, which is a quote from Obadiah 16. So as you can see, the Old Testament does very clearly describe the fate of the wicked, the fate of non-believers, in terms of total destruction. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, just like Edom, just like all the prophets in the historical books describe, the wicked are going to be destroyed. They're going to cease to exist. They're not. They may be in torment for a little while during the time that they're being destroyed, but they are being destroyed. They're going to stop being tormented because they're going to stop existing because they're being destroyed. Okay, so that was part one, and now we're going into part two, which is the intertestamental period. Fudge agrees that the doctrine of eternal conscious torment developed during the time between the testaments, but modern research totally destroys the presupposition that unending conscious torment was the Jewish view held by the earliest readers and writers of the New Testament scriptures. So you might have used to have been able to make this argument that, yeah, the view of eternal conscious torment didn't exist in the Old, uh, you can't find it in the Old Testament, but it developed over time and eventually became the majority view by the time of the writing of the New Testament authors. However, today we have access to many more writings through the work of archaeology and things like that. We've discovered more writings that date to the intertestamental period, Jewish writings, um, to the Second Temple literature, stuff like that. And we're finding that that's not actually the case. It's not actually the case that eternal conscious torment was the majority view. In fact, the exact opposite is true. So Fudge uh, seeks to show that while eternal conscious torment can be found in Second Temple writings, it can be, it's not the only game in town, and in fact, it's not the majority view. He states that the books of Tobit, uh, Sirach, Baruch, First and Second Maccabees, I didn't pronounce probably any of those correct, sorry, and the Wisdom of Solomon all agree with the Old Testament on the final destruction of the wicked. It's funny that I can never pronounce words correctly because I mostly just read them and then I come on here and try to pronounce them. Anyway, uh, so in, in other words, these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven books uh, from the intertestamental period uh, all agree with the Old Testament that the final uh, fate of the wicked will be destruction of, of the wicked. And so these are intertestamental books, these are Second Temple books, that do not put forward the traditional view, eternal conscious torment. They put forward the same view as the Old Testament, that the fate of the wicked is that they will be utterly and finally completely destroyed. Now his next line 
uh, is one of paramount significance. Fudge says, or writes, the first appearance of conscious unending torment in anything resembling bi biblical literature comes in the apocryphal book of Judith, in Judith 16, 17. If Fudge is correct, then the significance of this could hardly be overstated. The dominant view today, of hell today, at least in conservative evangelical circles, I don't know about others, eternal conscious torment, that view first appears in an apocryphal book during the intertestamental period. How in the world could that be the case? And yet it seems to be the dominant view today, or at least not too long ago, it was the dominant view. That, that's crazy. Now, returning to this apocryphal book called Judith, uh, Judith uses Isaiah 66, 24 to draw out its doctrine of eternal conscious torment. So it's drawing upon Isaiah 66, 24. The language is obviously um, that Judith is using Isaiah 66, 24. But Fudge notes a very stark contrast between Isaiah's picture and Judith's. And here are some of the contrasts. A quote from uh, Fudge. The prophet, Isaiah, has unburied corpses, where Judith has consciously tortured people. Isaiah's fire and worm destroy, whereas Judith's fire and worm simply torment. In Isaiah, the fire and, and worms are external agents consuming their dead victims. In Judith, they are internal agonies perpetually torturing from within. In Isaiah, and all the Old Testament, the victims are destroyed. In Judith, they've quote, feel their pain forever. So you can see the very stark contrast between Judith and Isaiah. And so, uh, I mean, for conservative evangelicals out there, I mean, which one are you going to go with? An, an apocryphal book from the intertestamental period or the prophet Isaiah? Uh, Fudge also notes one, two, three, four other works from the time that um, affirm the total destruction of the wicked. I'm not going to mispronounce those words either. I know I'm an idiot. I can't pronounce words. I wrote a blog article on this. If you want to go over to the website, helpmebelieveblog.com, and you can read all those words for yourself that I can't pronounce. But anyway, there's even more books that I hold to the utter destruction of the wicked and not eternal conscious torment during the intertestamental period. Now, Fudge does grant that some scholars interpret Second Enoch and Fourth Maccabees as affirming eternal conscious torment, but... Even then, not all scholars actually affirm that. So, to recap, the Old Testament overwhelmingly affirms the total destruction of the wicked, never once affirming eternal conscious torment. The first attestation to eternal conscious torment is in an apocryphal work during the intertestamental period, and it represents a minority view at that time. From this survey, if Fudge is correct, it becomes impossible to say that the dominant view at the writing of the New Testament was eternal conscious torment. If anything, based on Fudge's survey here, we can say the exact opposite. So remember why this is important. It's important because the doctrine of eternal conscious torment rests, according to Fudge's characterization, on the assumption that one, the Old Testament is silent, and two, that eternal conscious torment was the majority view at the time of the writing of the New Testament. So Fudge has, has shown that, yes, the Old Testament is silent on the matter of eternal conscious torment because no one ever talks about that. It's not silent, however, on the final fate of the wicked. In fact, it's explicitly clear that they will be utterly destroyed, which is to affirm the um, annihilationist position, that God will annihilate the wicked. And secondly, he's shown that at the time of the writing of the New Testament, the majority of view 
was not eternal conscious torment, though that did exist. It was a minority view. And so the foundation for eternal conscious torment then becomes unfounded, resting on sinking sand. So then we turn to the New Testament, which is where everyone's going to turn to, or every evangelical Christian is going to turn to try to support their doctrine of eternal conscious torment. Um, so Fudge launches into an examination of the language used in the New Testament to describe the fate of the wicked or non-believers. So let's start with the unquenchable, the unquenchable fire. So when the New Testament speaks of the quote-unquote unquenchable fire, like in Mark 9, 43 and 48, uh, traditionalists assume that this is a defense of eternal conscious torment. See, they'll, they'll say, see, the fire won't be quenched, right? It, it's unquenchable fire. Now Fudge responds in the affirmative. Yeah, it, the fire can't be quenched quench that's what it says but he notes that this language of quote-unquote unquenchable fire comes directly from the old testament in which fire totally destroys the substance it is burning so you can look at all the old testament references where you see unquenchable fire and it's and it's be, it's not being quenched in the sense that it's not being stopped that if you quench a fire you douse it with water or something like that yeah this fire is not going to be quenched it is going to destroy what it is burning because that's what fire does i mean first of all what happens when you throw something in fire? Is it cry out in agony and torment for forever, for eternal? No, the fire consumes it. It burns it up. It turns it to ash. It ceases to exist. It goes away. It's destroyed. Now, the fire won't be quenched. The language simply means it won't be stopped. It's going to happen. God is going to destroy them. You can't quench it. You can't stop it from coming. That's what unquenchable fire means. So, again, if you take into consideration the Old Testament background, this does not affirm eternal conscious torment. And Jesus himself even says, He will clear the threshing floor, burning up the chafe with unquenchable fire. It will burn the chafe up. The chafe will cease to exist. It will turn to ash. And this fire won't be quenched. It won't be stopped. It's going to happen. That's in Matthew 3.12. Uh, next is this language of undying worms. So Mark 9.48 uh, says that the, the worm that never dies. And this is another common verse, another common uh, word picture language that's cited by traditionalists in support of the eternal conscious torment view. But once again, Fudge notes that this language comes directly from the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah 66.24, which says, And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. That's God speaking. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched. You actually have both there. And they will be loath loathsome to all mankind. So note that the wicked in, in Isaiah 66 are dead bodies. That's what the worms are eating. Are they being consciously tormented? No. They're, they're dead bodies. They're no longer conscious. They're dead. So the language of worm that never dies, and unquenchable fire, not only don't support the traditionalist view, but they actually affirm the conditionalist view, or the annihilationist view, once you take into consideration the Old Testament background that the New Testament is clearly using. Next, you often see this gnashing of teeth language uh, cited by traditionalists, and you see it in Luke 13, 28, uh, where Jesus says that evildoers will be thrown uh, into a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. So notice that he nowhere says he nowhere says how long they will do so. Jesus doesn't say they're going to weep and gnash their teeth for all eternity because they're being tormented or something like that. He just says they're going to be thrown into a place where there is gnashing of the teeth and, and weeping. 
And Fudge points out that the language gnashing of the teeth is also found in the background of the Old Testament. Job 16.9, Psalms uh, 35.16, Psalm 37.12, Lamentations 2.16. It always refers to someone who's... Uh, so angry that they're grinding their teeth, they're gritting their teeth because they're angry. And you can even see this in the New Testament when Stephen is martyred. Uh, his accusers are grinding their teeth, they're gnashing their teeth. Evildoers are not grinding their teeth or gnashing their teeth and weeping because they are in eternal pain or torment. They're doing so because they're angry and frustrated. And that is clearly the case in all of the Old Testament, and also in Stephen's case in um, Acts 7. And so why would we suppose that Jesus meant anything else here? And, and here's a verse from the Old Testament on the gnashing of teeth that really stands out to me. It's Psalm 112.10, uh, which says, The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away the longings of the wicked will come to nothing so here we see the language of the gnashing of teeth in the same verse uh, as waste away and come to nothing once again the traditionalists attempt at a, a proof verse here is flipped on its head to not only not affirm the traditionalist view but actually affirms the conditionalist or annihilationist view uh, Fudge notes that uh, the, the next language we want to address is the smoke that ascends or the smoke that rises forever that you see in Revelation, which is, again, another commonly uh, cited verse to attempt to prop up the traditionalist view of hell. And Fudge notes that the smoke that rises forever and ever in Revelation 14.11 comes from the destruction of Sodom in Genesis 19.28. Again, there is an Old Testament context to these New Testament verses, of course. So because of the wickedness of Sodom, God rained down fire from heaven and totally destroyed the city. When Abraham saw the smoke rising, it was confirmation to him that the city had been fully consumed by the fire. Like... The, the smoke didn't mean to Abraham that the Sodomites were being eternally tormented forever. It, it confirmed for him that they had been destroyed, that God uh, came through on his word and destroyed them. This same word picture, Fudge notes, appears again in Isaiah 34.10 with the destruction of Edom. Isaiah says, its smoke will rise forever, speaking of the destruction of Edom. Again, the smoke symbolizes that Edom is destroyed, and irreversibly so. So the language of smoke rising forever and ever speaks to the irreversible destruction of whatever the fire has consumed. There's no hint of eternal torment, only utter destruction. That's because, because, again, that's what fire does, and smoke is a testimony that the fire has burned out, that the fire has done its job. This is what the author of Revelation clearly had in mind when applying this same language to Babylon in Revelation 18 and Revelation chapter 19 as well. Like Sodom and Edom before her, Babylon will be totally destroyed, and the smoke that rises forever is a testimony to God's judgment upon and destruction of her. Uh, next, we look at the language of no rest, day or night. So while Revelation 14, 9-11 does state that those who worship the beast will, quote, be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, there is no rest, day or night for those who worship the beast and his image. We should not undo everything we have already seen 
just because a vague and symbolic passage mentions tormented and no rest day or night in close proximity. So that's first thing. And secondly, if you remove your presupposition of eternal conscious torment and read Revelation in its Old Testament context, as we've already cited a few things from Revelation, you will see that the author is using familiar word pictures, Old Testament word pictures, again, that we've already discussed here, to describe total destruction. The wicked will certainly be tormented, sure, no denying that, but all of the Old Testament language used by the author of Revelation leads us to believe that this torment will end once they are totally destroyed by God. The rising smoke that we just talked about, is, which is in these chapters, um, is evidence that the author of Revelation has in mind an end to the wicked's torment. And that end is once they're totally destroyed. Sure, during the process of them being destroyed, there'll be no rest day or night, and they'll be tormented. It's not going to feel good. But they will be destroyed once that fire fully consumes them, because that's what fire does. Speaking of fire, the next language we want to address from the New Testament is the quote-unquote lake of fire. So a lake of fire must be the most common view of hell that we have, and in no small part due to the influence of Hollywood, which would have us believe that hell is like a place engulfed in flames where Satan and his little pickaxe or not pickaxe, the pitchfork is torturing the wicked forever. I know that's not the traditionalist view of things. I'm just uh, kind of going off on a tangent here about how much we've been influenced by Hollywood. And I still bear this image in mind when I hear the, the words lake of fire, like that still pops into my head at least. I mean, I know it's not the case, but that's what pops into my head. Uh, the lake of fire anyway is mentioned in Revelation 19.20, Revelation 20.10, and, and verse 15, and also in Revelation 21 and 8. So Revelation 19, 20, and 21. Uh, Fudge notes that the quote-unquote lake of fire is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. You don't see the phrase lake of fire anywhere else in the Bible. The closest parallel that you get comes from Daniel 7, verses 9 through 12, where a, quote, river of fire comes out from God, and the terrible fourth beast in, in Daniel 7 is thrown in the river of fire to, to be destroyed. And the key word is destroyed. Not, not torture forever, but destroyed, consumed by the fire, of course. Uh, if this is the Old Testament background for Revelation 19, 20, and 21, then destruction is obviously in mind. And it is the closest parallel we have to lake of fire. River of fire, lake of fire. A huge difference. Um, if it's not the Old Testament background that the author of Revelation had in mind, then there's likely no Old Testament background to this. So we'd, we'd have to then look to Revelation itself to try to uh, interpret this thing. And in Revelation itself, the beast and the false prophet are the first to be thrown in the lake of fire. Now, depending on how you interpret the beast and the false prophet, you might be able to solve this question of eternal conscious torment in, in these chapters at least pretty quickly. If you interpret them as actual individuals, or represented, representing actual inter, uh, individuals, uh, then you might have a case still for eternal conscious torment. If you uh, interpret them as something abstract, like governments and things like that, then you know, obviously government and abstract ideas is not going to be uh, tortured forever. So it depends on how you interpret those things. You might just solve it immediately. If you interpret uh, the beast and the prophet as abstractions, then obviously eternal conscious torment's off the table. If you interpret them as literal individuals, then you might still have uh, a case for eternal conscious torment. And if you, you know, restrict yourself to d just these chapters, which we wouldn't. We'd want to take into consideration the entirety of Scripture. 
But at any rate, you just keep reading in verse 14, quote unquote, death and Hades are thrown into the lake as well after the beast and the prophet. Um, in Isaiah, Isaiah 25, 7 through 8, and Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 26, both Isaiah and Paul agree that death will be destroyed once and for all. So they agree with uh, Revelation. There is actually a, uh, a Old Testament and New Testament background to that. Uh, Fudge makes this remark. Death and Hades, which are thrown into the lake of fire, are certainly abstractions, right? There's no person called death. There's no person called Hades. These are abstractions and representations, symbolic, however you want to say that. They are abstractions, not persons. And the lake of fire here means their annihilation. Death will be no more, forever. So obviously, death and Hades are not going to suffer eternal conscious torment in a lake of fire. Death isn't conscious, it's an abstraction. Hades isn't conscious, it's either a place or, an ab again, an abstraction of some sort. They're not going to suffer eternal conscious torment. They're going to be destroyed. So, if you then turn in verse 15, where the wicked are thrown into the lake of fire, or evildoers are thrown into the, the, the lake of fire, are they not? Shouldn't, shouldn't we just interpret it that as they're going to be destroyed, just like death in Hades? Why would we suddenly interpret it as them being eternally conscious tormented when obviously death and Hades aren't going to be eternally consciously tormented? Like you'd have to apply a double standard. You'd have to say, well, obviously death and Hades aren't going to be eternally consciously tormented. They're just going to be destroyed. But the people thrown in there, they're going to suffer for eternity. You, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. It's got to be one or the other. And I highly doubt you're going to say that death and Hades mere abstractions are going to suffer eternal conscious torment. So you have a bit of a dilemma here in Revelation 19, 20, and 21 with the lake of fire because the lake of fire obviously symbolizes destruction and not eternal conscious torment. In fact, those who are thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation are directly contrasted with those whose names are written in the book of life. The opposite of life is obviously death, not torture, but death, which the author of Revelation makes explicitly clear whenever he says the lake of fire is the second death. He actually says that in another chapter, too. So twice he says that the lake of fire is the second death. It's referring to death, because that's what happens when you throw people in fire. They burn up. That's what happens. They're not tormented forever. There's no mention of that. They're completely, utterly destroyed. Now, that wraps up the New Testament segment for Fudge, except for he sp specifically outlines Paul's letters, and he just makes a very brief statement, and Fudge adds that Paul's teaching on the matter is explicitly clear, that the final fate of the wicked is death and destruction, Romans 6, 21, 23, which are the verses that got me thinking on this in the first place, right? The, the wages of sin is death. It's, it's not eternal conscious torment. It's, it's death, which is explicitly agrees with Genesis 3, and the, Genesis 1 through 3. Right, you, you, until people start saying weird things like, well, they didn't die immediately, so it must be a spiritual death, eternal conscious torment. That is That leap of logic, which isn't logical at all, I, I could never follow. I don't know how you go from they didn't die immediately to eternal conscious torment, absolutely beyond me, or spiritual death, whatever that even means. It's just very strange to my ears. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. 
and it is a leap in logic I cannot make. Like, my brain won't allow me to do that. So, anyway, got off on a tangent there. Paul's teaching on the matter is clear that he thinks the fate of the wicked is death and destruction. Romans 6, 21 and 23. Uh, Romans 2, 12. Galatians 6, 8. 1 Corinthians 3, 17. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. And uh, Philippians 1, 28. And also Philippians 3, 19. Again, go read those for yourself. So, in conclusion, based on Fudge's uh, thorough survey of the biblical and even intertestamental literature, one can easily see that the biblical evidence in favor of eternal conscious torment is severely lacking, to say the least, if it's there at all. There are but a few word pictures, symbols, that one can point to in the New Testament in an attempt to hang on to such a doctrine. doctrine. But as Fudge has shown, those very word pictures and symbols actually work in the opposite direction. They not only don't affirm eternal conscious torment, but they're specifically talking about the utter destruction of the wicked, which is exactly what the Old Testament says, which is is exactly what the New Testament authors were using to inform their own theology. That was their worldview. They had an Old Testament worldview. So, the wicked will be punished by their just creator. Yes. Their punishment will have an everlasting effect. Yes. However, they will not be tortured consciously for an unending amount of time that's nowhere in the bible the wicked sin evil pain and even death will all be defeated and utterly destroyed by our righteous god once and for all and for all eternity to come thanks so much for watching if you enjoyed the episode be sure to hit the like button subscribe leave us a review and of course if you want to support our mission here to help me believe to strengthen believers and answer critics by making free material like this that's uh, spread and defend the truth of Christianity. Be sure to follow the Patreon link in the description below and become a supporter. My name is Hayden Clark, and this is Help Me Believe. (laughs) 